The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis, James Fegan, and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome, everybody, to a special midweek edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm Jim Margulis, managing editor of SoxMachine.com, and I'm joined today by Keith Law of The Athletic, who posted his annual top White Sox prospects list among dozens and dozens of other rankings. Prospects for every team? He ranked them. Top 100 prospects in baseball? He ranked them. Top farm systems in baseball? Again, he ranked them. And now he joins us to talk about his rankings of the top White Sox prospects ahead of the 2024 season. Keith Law, thanks for uh, returning to the uh, Sox Machine podcast, returning champion. Uh, I've been enjoying your work all week, and uh, I imagine you're glad that it's getting out there and it's finally off your desk, literally or figuratively. Uh, the majority of it is. I think I still have eight teams left to write up. So uh, we took the weekend. I took the weekend off. We did a big family ski trip up to the Poconos. I am not a good skier. I like it. I want to be better. And I'm always reminded that I'm not, um, but I want my kids to be my daughter. My stepdaughters are all better skiers at their ages that they've all been skiing before I ever went for the first time in my life. So in that sense, I think my wife and I are, are doing a good job. It was funny. I had a, like a outline all neatly written up and then baseball America drops this uh, report uh, this afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, talking about how the complex leagues are being the schedule is being changed to be bumped up to start in early May rather than early June. So the schedule ends before drafted players can get involved. And your initial reaction was one of uh, dislike. Yeah. And uh, I want to get your thoughts on that because I could see a few different reasons to dislike it. I saw like a baseball America, like maybe a few months ago, they talked about like, what's the point of extended spring training as is why can't they make it actual games? So I think there was like, a movement to start that season earlier, but to then eliminate all the games in the back half of the schedule seems kind of short-sighted. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'm not a fan of anything that reduces opportunities for players to play. And that is both in terms of like actual games, but also levels. You know, I have been screaming into the void 
for several years now that eliminating short season, the level between the complexes and low A, was going to be deleterious for player development. There's a whole large group of players who absolutely need that intermediate step. And I'm going to highlight in a bunch of these team by team top 20s, I'm going to talk about here's a player who needed short season. Here's a player who needed short season. I just feel like I have to keep saying it over and over again because it's true. It's really hurting a lot of player development. George and, Wolkow is one for the White Sox that, yes, you, that you singled out. Yep, absolutely. I think he's a perfect candidate for that. Brandon Winoker for the Twins is another one that comes to mind. There are also a lot of international free agents of that uh, who are going to, you know, they'll play They're ready for the comp. They do the DSL. They're ready for the complex league. They're not ready for low A. And all that this thing today seems to do is it's just going to push some of these draft kids to low A. Well, how are you going to send a kid you just drafted maybe to low A and then tell him the next year, actually, we're going to keep you back in the complex instead. Now it feels like he feels like he's been demoted. So mm-hmm. to me, that, that hurts. It is all about, I mean, every, everything Major League Baseball does on this front, I just immediately assume it's all about saving money. I don't think they care about anything else at all uh, other than saving money, reducing their costs. And it doesn't matter how trivial the cost is, right? It's penny-wise and pound-foolish. And I think that in this case, they are going, we're going to lose players. We're going to lose play, – players are still going to come into the sport, but they're not going to develop like we want it. We're going to keep finding that we don't have – uh, as many players as we think we should. Oh, where's the pitching? Where do all the shortstops go? Where do all these players go? Because we are not developing them. We don't have the appropriate steps. We don't have the appropriate levels in place. And also because we, um, and I think what's also going to happen is I think it's going to encourage some players who are kind of on the bubble to just go to college. Say Major League Baseball saying, we'll let the colleges develop thinking, it. Yeah. Right? Now let them spend the money. I don't want that. Colleges are not good at developing players. Actually, I might argue on a, on the whole, there are individual colleges that do a good job, but on the whole, college baseball has sucked at developing players for pro ball. They're fine developing mm-hmm. players just for their own purposes. That's that's their role in the ecosystem. And so I don't want to see us farming out, no pun intended, the job of developing players to the colleges because I don't think they're really capable of doing it, not in the way that we need where we're looking often at these very, very long-term time horizons. It was funny, that story broke around the same time that there was a lot of social media posts about the new Fanatics jerseys uh, in clubhouses talking about how cheap they look. And it just, it it struck me as like a little bit too uh, perfectly parallel, just two tracks of just cutting corners and look just how bad it looks on its face for like a, you know, not even for casual fans, just saying like, how does less baseball make sense? How does not getting drafted players that you're excited about following right away, like for fans who are like, oh, this high school player, what's this all about? I'm looking forward to seeing his box scores in the ACL or the Florida League. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, you know, they're kind of not there for the first couple of weeks. You forget about them. And then yeah. spring training comes around like, oh, I hope he's this this player is good, who was a complete mystery and nobody had any look at him. And when you read your, uh, you know, your top prospect list or any of them, like nobody really has any good looks that allow them to kind of base good expectations for very young players who have a long way to go. Teams are going to still going to scout whatever they do because they're, they're going to hold fake games. It's going to be like instructs, like extended spring, like the the so-called tricky league that they used to do in the DSL where- Alternate they, training sites kind of? Yeah, they were unofficial games. And look, I'm kind of fine with that because I do think it is, you know, the, in some, at some points in the year, for folks you don't know, in those other games, those unofficial games, you can 
the biggest difference is you can roll an inning. So if a pitcher's just throwing too many pitches, he can't get the third out. Sometimes he can't get the first out. That's fine. You just say roll them and you just change sides because nobody's really nobody really cares who wins. It means you don't have stats to keep track of. And I mean, for those of us who are kind of on the outside, that's not great. But that is still, you know, they're still holding games. There's these guys are still getting some kind of playing experience. And you can also do things like, oh, so-and-so needs to lead off every inning because we're trying to catch him up on at-bats because he's getting over an injury. You can do that in these these alternate games. That's fine. However, the idea of taking a guy in the draft, and this is particularly true for high schoolers, right? This isn't really, doesn't really apply to college guys because they've had more experience. They're older. They're probably ready to go to low A. Occasionally, they're ready to go to a higher level. But for high schoolers to say, all right, now you're just going to go play fake games the rest of the year. Really? Really? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm, I'm to me, that's I could imagine a high schooler saying, well, this sucks. This is what I signed up for. And maybe that does encourage some of them to go to college instead, which I don't really want, because I do think major league teams at, on the whole do a better job of developing those teenage players than um, than colleges do. Well, you know, it's funny to say that we can shift to a more positive topic and say <laughs> the White Sox farm system because you actually rank them 10th, which yeah. was a pleasant surprise. Is it fair to say Keith Law kind of likes the White Sox? I do kind of like the White Sox. I kind of like the things they've been doing. And, you know, that goes back to the draft last year and uh, in the, I would actually say the last couple of drafts in general. Um, they've done a decent job with some trades. And I would say, then I like the hire of Chris Getz. We'll see what he, you know, actually does uh, mm-hmm. over time in the job. But I was definitely an optimist, at least when he first, uh, when they first made the hire. I've known Chris for a couple of years. Certainly on the player development side, he has a lot of good ideas. He said a lot of the right things. Um, I think we did see some development, some certainly a lot of different things and generally better things happening on the player development side for them, which is particularly good to see. Um and so, yeah, I'm. I would say I'm cautiously optimistic on things over there. They don't. Well, I know we'll go through the system a lot. They don't have a lot mm-hmm. of depth. And somebody did point out to me I'd ranked them higher at least once before. So this isn't the highest I've ever ranked the White Sox, but it may be the best I've ever felt about the White Sox. And I know it's not exactly the same thing, but I do. Yeah, I don't put the my vibe doesn't go into the rankings. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I feel good. I feel like an optimist. If I were a White Sox fan, I'd say, hey, I think things are the arrows pointing up. Now, it hasn't been pointing up in a little while. Yeah, we, when you were on the show last, uh, we talked about Chris Getz because you voiced an optimistic or at least open-minded view of what he might be able to bring to the position if he got the right kind of support from mm-hmm. above. And, you know, that's always a big question when it comes to the White Sox and Jerry Reinsdorf and the way just their chain of command often gets really warped and tangled. But his first, you know, now he's made some hires, he's made some trades, uh, he's, you know, spoken on record a number of times like how has that informed your decision so far you know reinforced it altered it you know what have you heard from other people in terms of you know staffers he's hired you know the, like the recent trades he just made with trading christian mena for uh yeah and and gregory santos and bringing in dominic fletcher and zach deloche like how has this all added up to i guess fill out the the picture of gets he had in mind initially as he starts in this job i mean the one thing i'll say that i think is probably the best thing it's that everyone's complaining he's asking too much for Dylan Cease. I'm like, good. Mm-hmm. He should. You don't, don't ask for too little. What would you rather if you're a White Sox fan? Now, this is not White Sox fans complaining necessarily. This is other clubs. Oh, they're asking for the sun and the moon. Sure, he should. 
it's his most valuable player to potentially trade. So yeah, he absolutely should do that. Um, so you know, that's a positive. I think the trades so far, they've all been pretty minor. They're a little bit of a mixed bag for me. I thought Christian Mena, I think I probably valued him slightly above Dominic Fletcher. You could also argue he's a pitcher. Fletcher's a position player, right? That may be, that cancels that out. But the trade with Seattle was great. That is, I think Joe Sheen even wrote this. Like, this is what bad teams do. Get a reliever with some promise or even a starter you can stick in the pen, sort of polish them off, right? New coat of paint, and then turn around and trade them for something, uh, some package of player or players, right, that will more benefit you in the long term. That's great. Love to see that. Hope Getz continues doing that. Saw some comments from him today about saying Kopech is still a starter for him. That could be just talk. I do think at some point you probably want to just think about putting Kopech in the bullpen also to think about trading him at some point because he's not had the kind of extended success as a starter that I certainly forecasted for him. The White Sox foresaw when they traded for him. So, you know, maybe at some point you say, well, what's, what's the best way to maximize the value of the time we have left with Kopech? Maybe that's just sticking him in the bullpen and uh, seeing if you can trade, seeing if he performs better and then you can trade him at some point later on. I think we'll have a much better sense on Getz when we get to August 1st. Once we've been through a draft and a trade deadline, and also seen some of the moves he makes with the major league roster over the course of this season, too. I'm very curious to see how they deploy certain players, for example, or how they um, how they choose to develop certain guys. Are they, you know, the the whole idea of let's run everybody into Birmingham? Well, some guys benefited from that, some guys didn't. You know, what kind of those ideas that get that was a gets idea? Mm-hmm. Do they continue some of these things, or do they say it was a good experiment? Don't think it really worked out well enough. Let's try something else. You know, when it comes to the farm system and, and you know, the, the Birmingham uh, connection, uh, a lot of those guys uh, in your top 100 were Birmingham guys. You had uh, especially Colson Montgomery at 42. I was interested by your that ranking because when I saw the ranking before reading the blurb, I thought, oh, you don't think he's a shortstop because if he has to move a third because he's not going to stick at shortstop, obviously his value takes a hit uh, and, and obviously you know, reduces his value somewhat in this big, you know, against other prospects. But you had him. You're, you're optimistic about his forecast at short. So is the uh, ranking kind of middle of the top 100 more about whether he'll regain? Like, are you concerned that the lack of fluidity he showed at shortstop last year was due to the uh, oblique and back issues, and you know, kind of guarding against that? And you think like he can shed that off, or you think that's going to possibly stick with him next year? There's there's a couple of things. I mean, I. Colson just didn't look right last year. And I know some people felt like the performance was fine and oh, he hit better at the end. Everybody I talked to who saw him said he did not look like himself. He was it, not move, moving as if freely. If I may interject yeah. real quick, like I was watching him at the end of the season with Birmingham yeah. and I was taking photos of him. So I had my camera on him like in between okay. pitches. And I noticed like a lot of shoulder rolls, neck uh, twists, you know, kind of back bends, you know, hip, you know, flex, you know, kind of like a lot of motion. Then I was like, I'm going to look at other players between pitches and you see like playing with the lace of the glove, kicking the dirt, but it seemed like a lot of twitching, a lot of stretching and such. And so I wondered, you know, if that was related to that, if that was a case of just, that's what he always does. And I've never just paid attention to him that closely between pitches. So I'm curious when I saw you mention that the, the, you know, teams were still wondering if he was, you know, stiff because of that. I kind of wondered that too. Yeah, it was like he didn't, right? He just didn't seem to play, didn't seem to have the same flexibility, didn't seem to have that same kind of fast twitch action that he'd shown before. Like his whole game seemed slowed down. He looked sluggish. He really didn't look good in fall league. And I certainly understand why they sent him there. 
but you know at the same time he just he didn't look good i mean he just did not at all look like himself and i got a lot of reports calls from texts from scouts during the latter half of the season we're like why is colson montgomery you know why is he considered a top 10 prospect in the game? This guy's definitely not a shortstop. I don't even think he's got that much power. Like, all right, we got a somewhere, right? The the truth on this one is probably somewhere in between, right? He's, you know, maybe not the whatever fifth best prospect in baseball, but he's also not, like, if you had no other information, just saw this guy play in the second half of 23 and or in fall league, you'd probably say he wasn't a top 100 prospect at all. And I don't think that's right either. Um, mm-hmm. I also do have some concern, right? Anytime there's back problems or anything in that area, right, those can last and they can end up affecting a guy's career over the long term and they can end up forcing a change in position. Like I've always said, I thought Colson had the, um, I talk about him like I know him personally, but there's too many Montgomerys in baseball and I'm just used mm-hmm. to referring to him as by his first name. Now we got another one in the draft this year too in Braden. So I'm going to be even more confused, <laughs> but like I've always thought Colson had the hands and the instincts and certainly the arm to stay at shortstop. And it was probably just going to come down to how big the body got. But I've seen him make plays at shortstop as now this is going back two years that made me say, there's nothing right now that says he's not shortstop. There may be going forward something, you know, maybe the body changes or he slows down or something. Right now, this guy could, could stay at shortstop. Last year, if you watched him, you're like, I don't know. I don't know where to put this guy. Is it second base? Cause we don't know where else to stick him. That's not fair either. And so I, ranking him where I did was a reflection of all of that uncertainty that it's not that he stunk last year that we we realized he wasn't as good as we thought it's that he never looked right he was probably never fully healthy I do worry that this the injury could recur or affect things long term and yeah he didn't take a step forward last year he could take another step forward this year maybe he gets fully healthy this offseason the injuries behind him he takes a step forward, and then I move him back until I think he was in my top 20 a year ago. And I would be comfortable if you told me you had a crystal ball and the injury was never, ever going to be an issue again. Nobody can ever promise that on any player. But the mm-hmm. idea, right, then he'd be in the top 20. I re- I do. I bought it. I, I didn't love the pick at the time based on the information I had. And then I went and saw him. No, this guy's actually really good. I think he's very talented. I think he's got great instincts. I like the swing. I do think there's going to be enough power. I'm probably more like 60, 40, 50, 50 on shortstop. But if he's not a shortstop, he's a very good third baseman. There's a lot to like here. I'm just trying to reflect the reality of the situation and what teams think. That is the other thing that always shows up on my list, even though ultimately it's my opinion. Mm -hmm. If multiple scouts, multiple teams are saying we have this or models don't like him as much. I think he's too hot. That that gets reflected in my list as well, um, because I can't do it alone. I'm not I'm one person. I don't see every player. And even if I did. You can't be right on every play. You just can't possibly gather enough insight to be able to do that without reaching out to trusted sources. Okay, then the rest of your top 100 was uh, Edgar Caro at 67, Brian Ramos at 69, Nick Nestrini at 76, and Noah Schultz at 79. And we talked about Caro the last time you were on, and I think you know the he's he's shaping into like a a good catcher and probably can stick at the position and could be a good on base guy with some pop. Uh, but what's interesting to me about the system is that, you know, they, it has some bald spots in the system, particularly the outfield, which is why they had to add Fletcher mm-hmm. and Deloche, but like catcher is pretty interesting for them. Like when you look up and down the system, like you think about all the potential starters you might have at the four levels and you kind of, whether you like them it's worth watching them. Like I'm thinking like even Corey Lee and Carlos Perez are there and they look like third catchers, you know, at most right now, but like, you know, Adam Hackenberg, he's, 
keeping mm-hmm. the door open and making himself interesting by just making, you know, slight improvements year over year. And, you know, Michael Turner did, you know, probably feasted on high a pitching, you know, being a little bit older for the level, but like he showed what he could last year. Ronnie Hernandez is somebody who's aced his two assignments so far in rookie ball, you know, yep. DSL in the complex league. And so I'm really looking forward to watching him in Kannapolis to see what he's all about. But this actually looks for catchers, given the scarcity of them around the league. Like this actually seems like a, a potential area of depth, like, you know, maybe at the deadline or a year from now. Yes. I think that's fair. I mean, you know, the, the, you also, it's, it's a position where if you can acquire depth, you love to, because they get hurt all the time and they develop on, you know, they, I, I agree with the old axiom that catchers do take longer to develop because you're basically asking them to learn two jobs and everyone else only has to learn one. So I think there are a lot of things, um, a lot of reasons why you might say, Hey, we have all this catching depth, but, but you know what? That's the, the so much so far from a short thing versus having like a lot of center field depth. For example, I look at the Dodgers where a year ago, you know, Will Smith, obviously they have in the big leagues, Diego mm-hmm. Cartaya will look like one of the best prospects in baseball. And Dalton rushing came out and hit four Oh five in his brief time after the draft. And then a year later, Cartaya had just an absolutely awful season across the board and even scouts were saying, we're not giving up on him, but he's probably just not a star at this point, which is really disappointing because he looked like a star. And rushing, he had the concussion. He didn't hit all that well. And I don't know how to disentangle the two. Maybe he just wasn't the same after the concussion. There's also been concerns about his bat speed. Now, Dodgers being the Dodgers, of course, they have another catcher coming up behind those guys. But my point was that catching depth is the least sure thing to have. So it's great to get it. Um because it feels like you have to have four catching prospects to end up with one really good one and maybe a couple of backups. And if you end up in that situation, like you described, where you have two, you you can trade one. Look at the Pirates. Pirates a year ago, it's, well, Henry Davis isn't going to catch because they have Andy Rodriguez. Who is a better catcher than Davis? And then Andy gets hurt. So now Davis is going to catch, and I'm sure they're thinking, wow, thank goodness we had two viable catchers in the big leagues. And that actually, as it works out for them, Davis is going to get the extended time on the plate they'll need to decide if he can be the catcher for them long term. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other thing that jumped out to me about your list is that when we were forming our top 10 list uh, at Sox Machine, James Fegan and I, mm-hmm. uh, we both saw the system as having a consensus number one prospect yep. and a consensus number six prospect in Jacob Gonzalez. And then mm-hmm. you upended that by placing Jake Eater sixth and placing <laughs> Gonzalez seventh. Uh, so that was my, uh, my, my fist shaking moment at you of like, <laughs> you know, how dare you? Uh, but like Jake Eater is a guy, I just, you know, based on how he looked at the White Sox, given the kind of end of the Kenny Williams era and all the talk about how Williams made the trade over the wishes of his front office. Uh, and just the, you know, it feels like a parting gift from that era that could just like linger. So, you know, going in, you know, putting my vibes in the rankings, I do put vibes in the ranking because sometimes that's all I have. <laughs> I just, you know, as far as either at the white Sox, did not see anything that made me want to put him ahead of Gonzalez or like, you know, towards the top half of the list, but Obviously, he does have a history that predates the White Sox, and so you have to take that into account. But like, where do you stand on like the? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you ranked him where you ranked him, which is sixth, and you said that he is probably a reliever unless he can improve the changeup and strike throwing overall. But like, for White Sox fans who just saw him basically at his worst while healthy and being able to throw, like, what are we going to look for? Where you know, I guess, what are we hoping for? Where is the optimism? Right before he got hurt, he was the best pitching prospect in the Marlins system, maybe the best prospect in their system. I think that was right before the emergence of Yuri Perez. I may be getting the chronology just slightly off there. He'd certainly passed Max Meyer from that same draft class. And then Eater got hurt, and it was a little bit of a long road back. I don't think he was 100% back even last year, um, which was his first actual year back pitching. He showed the stuff. He didn't show the command, the control. Sometimes those do take a little bit longer to come back. I also love the idea of just getting him out of the Marlins system uh, to try to, all right, get him, let's get him in a different program. Let's try some different things. This guy, he was a prospect going all the way back to high school. He's always had a good arm. He's always been able to spin it. He's always had velocity. That stuff had always picked, had just kept picking up, picking up, picking up. And then the elbow blow. I'm sure those things are a little bit connected as well. So mm-hmm. he does have a history pre-surgery of being a lot better than what we saw. Um, I think you have a lot to work with there. I think he's got the size, the delivery, the arm strength, the feel to spin. Look, I'm hedging my bet a little bit. And yeah, it's probably a reliever based on what we saw last year. And that he'd never, he has never actually had that full season of pitching like an elite starting pitching prospect. Fully acknowledge that. Um, mm-hmm. But I see a lot of paths to upside there. The thing with Gonzalez, and I am not ever going to argue like, oh, six and seven have to be that way. Seven and six, yeah. sure, flip them. It, that, those aren't the decisions that I spend I'll bend a, a you to my will. On. Right. But like it's six versus 16. Those are the things you make sure you yeah. get. Right. But, you know, on Gonzalez, I saw him in the spring. I was like, he's a good college player. And then I saw the rest of the draft. <clears throat> Excuse me. I saw him very early. And, you know, then I'd see Braden Taylor and I'd see Brock Wilkin. And I kept seeing guys. I'm like, God, these guys are all way better. All these other hitters, they're hitting the ball much except Jacob Wilson. Everyone else hitting the ball harder and they're showing more athleticism or they're showing more power. They're showing better plate discipline. Suddenly Gonzalez just kept creeping down, creeping down, creeping down. Wow. I like these guys, these other guys quite a bit more in comparison. It was kind of an epic draft class for college position players. And we may not see another one like it for a long time. Then Gonzalez goes out to pro ball and obviously he didn't perform great. This isn't really about performance, particularly in a tiny sample like that. What did alarm me was the number of scouts uh, who reached out to me because they saw Gonzalez and said, how the hell was this guy a first rounder or some variation thereof? 
they just crushed him. Like that's an extra guy. Doesn't look like he can hit. There's no impact. They're moving him off shortstop. It, I mean, it was alarming. I do not get reports that bad on guys mm-hmm. right out of the draft. Um, you know, the occasional, not not on a high high pick, right? There's always the third rounder, the high school kid, or it's like, wait, well, he stinks. Sure, that happens. We can make those mistakes on teenage players. For an SEC product like that to go out and look bad, not just play badly, but look bad in his first, whatever it was, 30-odd games in pro ball, that's pretty alarming. It's in my history, that's really exceptional. What I hear a lot more of is, I can't believe this guy didn't go higher. Those are the calls, the texts I get a lot more of. And those are fun. Colt Emerson with the Mariners was one of those. Where it's, oh man, the Mariners took him, I think it was 22nd or 23rd, and they may have gotten the steal of the draft. But those are much more common versus, hey, this guy's just out of college. You know, it's been a long season, et cetera. Oh, he stinks. Nobody actually used that word, but I mean, that's what mm-hmm. they were thinking. That's pretty alarming, actually. And yeah, I will say, oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was wondering, do they take that into account, like just the long season? Do they bake in a little, like a little bit of fatigue or preparing to be underwhelmed a little bit before they start like actually sounding alarms? I, I do. I think you should, when I see those guys after the draft, um, which often I do because I live in an area where A-ball, there's a lot of A-ball teams around me. So those guys do tend to show up. Um, I saw Dylan Cruz, who's the second pick. They skipped him over Wilmington where I live. So I drove up to Harrisburg to catch him there. And he didn't look great. And he's still in my top 10. Like he he didn't, he looked tired, I thought. Mm-hmm. I do have a little bit of a question. Like I think fastballs at the top of the zone are going to give him some trouble. That is not, well, so he was a, SEC product, you know, college guy who was in double A, which is awfully fast. But you saw a lot of guys from this draft class go out to high A, double A. I think two guys got to triple A and kept posting all the way up through that last stop. So it's a little bit concerning that Gonzalez played badly and looked bad doing it when his peers were doing so well in the same kind of trial. So I'm not dismissing what you say. I do think Mm -hmm. that's real. I think the fatigue issue is absolutely real. Um, I do think we have to keep that in mind. It is more about, in Gonzalez's case, the tools. They were saying, like, there's not great bat speed. There's certainly not running speed. It's not elite defense. It's short. He's not impacting the ball. It was a very quick and very stark difference between what pro scouts thought and what generally what amateurs thought. And the point I was going to make is that felt like a very last regime pick. Mm-hmm. And obviously, they did call some Montgomery and they did Noah Schultz. I have suspicions that Schultz, which looks like a great pick, and I'm not taking anything away, if he wasn't in their backyard, would they have done that? I don't know. That's a, a, I may never know the answer to that. But Jacob Gonzalez was a very Kenny Williams walking into the draft room saying, you need to take a college position player. You know, the Jake Berger pick. Jake Berger ended mm-hmm. up in the big leagues and he's okay. But I don't think that's who the scouts wanted at the time. And I wrote, we, I think we may have even talked about it when they fired the GM, when they fired Kenny and, and Rick Hahn. I got a lot of stories from ex-White Sox people talking about all of the nonsense that went on in the draft room, all the interference where the scouting staff would want one player and somebody above them would come in and say, nope, you have to do such and such more conservative thing. And that is something I will be looking for with, with Getz. Does he let the scouts do their job? And you can you can incorporate that with your R&D department. You can have a draft model. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But let them take who they want to take. Do not walk in and say you have to take some vanilla college position player with decent numbers when the scouts want to shoot a little bit higher, especially because you, you know, that first round pick, that's your chance. It's your chance to get a Colson Montgomery. And if you Mm -hmm. got a shot at a guy like that, you better take it. I feel I just look at all the guys they passed on last year from, I mentioned Braden Taylor is available. Brock Wilkin was available. Colt Emerson was still available. 
there were a lot of good players still on the board who they could have taken and, and who were known at the time to be good players like that. I'm not even talking about players who, who went much later, who look, looked really good afterwards. And, and you know, we're saying so-and-so should have gone in the first round players. Mm-hmm. They could have been considering with that actual pick. After like the six and seven uh, spots on the prospect list, like it really opens up. Um, you know, when I was trying to put together the list, like a lot of players who I didn't have strong attachments to, but kind of interested in. And you went with Tanner McDougal in the first spot for the the eighth of that that aftermath of the uh, <laughs> kind of consensus picks. And you know, watching his season alongside Peyton Paulette, they were on the same program of throwing like three to four innings or 65 pitches or so every six days, like not every five days. Like I don't think they started like twice in a week uh, if the schedule you know, would have allowed to do it. And I think it's good for McDougal that he was keeping pace with Paulette, but not good for Paulette that McDougal is keeping pace with him. That's kind of my read on those two <laughs> situations. So we're yeah, like, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, like it's, you know, given an Arkansas start, like McDougal keeping, you know, looking like Paulette did, great for McDougal, mm-hmm. maybe not great for Paulette. And like now here comes Grant Taylor, you know, n- another shot at that SEC player coming off Tommy John surgery and, and yeah. rehabbing, you know, in regular season games. I did think it was interesting that they went right back to the same well. Um, and I want to give Paulette another year. He didn't look mm-hmm. good. I didn't see him. This is from scouts who saw him. A lot of disappointment, especially I, the thing I worry about the most with this, this blithe assumption. It's like, yeah, Tommy John, he'll be fine. Like they don't all come back the same. And a lot of pitchers, especially pitchers who had really good breaking balls come back. And that 70 breaking balls of 55. Lucas Giolito was one of those. Um, Jay Groom was one of those. Uh you know, it actually remains to be seen. Dylan Lesko didn't have any elite curveball, but he had a very high spin curveball. He was up to like 2,900 RPMs the day that he broke. Um, hmm. I happened to be there. And does that come all the way back? Folks who saw Lesko last year said velocity was good. The changeup is elite once again. Curveball remains a work in progress. We'll see. Worry about that with Paulette. And I worry about that generally where we're just like, we can just take a Tommy John guy. Yeah, some mm-hmm. of them come back at, at 100%. Most guys come back enough to be close to what they were before. To, you know, a major league pitcher before is probably going to be a major league pitcher afterwards. There are some guys who didn't don't come back. Gunnar Hoglund in the uh, Oakland system. Stuff just never came back. He was a first rounder, got traded in the Matt Chapman trade from Toronto to Oakland. It's just not coming. It's just not happening. And that we don't hear a lot about those stories, but they do exist. And I worry with Paulette less about, oh, give him another year. Arm strength might get a little bit better. Command and control often do get a little bit better that second year. But if the breaking ball is not what it was before, if I remember correctly, that was kind of the pitch. So Mm -hmm. that's a little disappointing. With McDougal, I had really good notes on him. And people who put pro scouts who obviously hadn't seen him before because he was hurt were having a little bit of, uh, where'd this guy come from? Not like they'd never heard of him, but he beat their expectations. And Mm. it was very, somebody specifically said, arrow pointing upward on that one. It was the actual expression. Okay, that's a good one. Slide him up a little bit on the rankings. And also, I just pulled him up myself, too. When I look at the names that are right behind him, it's a lot of guys who are very likely relievers or, you know, in Taylor's case, like we just don't really know. We'll see mm-hmm. what it looks like because he had, I, in reading my own words here, he had a hammer curveball. I hope it comes back. I hope it's still there. But I worry about breaking balls not coming back. Much more than I worry about velocity because they all seem to most of them seem to regain enough of the velocity. It's much more common to leave the breaking ball in the operating room than it is to leave the big fastball. After the uh, top seven, I went with Wilfred Veras, who Mm -hmm. 
You know, I'm falling for the White Sox hitting prospect with the massive strikeout to walk disparity. Uh, and I fully admit that. And it's probably going to blow up in my face. Uh, but and that's always a key word. But and here's where you <laughs> fall back into it. Uh, the two things that surprise me or uh, two things that stand out, I should say, is one age for level like he's produced everywhere he's gone, given some aggressive assignments and held up. Yeah. And so points for that. Uh, the contact is always loud and entertaining or often is loud and entertaining. Mm -hmm. The other thing that jumped out to me watching him in person last year was he's faster than I thought. But yeah. it's funny, like he show, it shows up on the base paths, but not in the outfield. Like yeah. on the base paths, there's a lot more decisiveness. Uh, you know, he, he's not afraid to steal bases or take the extra base. And like, oh, for a future DH or a guy who's fighting to stay off first base DH, like he can actually run yeah. a little. But then when you watch him in the outfield, it's very cautious like mm -hmm. we've seen worse because the white Sox mm -hmm. believe in playing first baseman in the right field like we've seen far worse on a regular yes. basis they're just trying to condition you yeah pretty much uh but like you know so i've seen worse but it is like there is hesitancy uh the closing speed isn't great like you yeah. know, the kind of cautious lines and make sure the ball doesn't get behind him when it comes to like trying to figure out if a guy can play the outfield if he has the foot speed to do so which i think varus does how hard is it or like how much of it is it art versus science when it comes to kind of figuring out whether he can actually get comfortable enough to turn into a good outfielder versus an outfielder who can only run when the ball's in the gap and he knows he has to. I, the scouts I talked to who, you know, typically spend six games or more watching the player came back and said, he's athletic enough for a corner. That's not to say he's a good corner outfielder right now, but there's no physical reason he can't do it. Um, and so then it becomes a question of, honestly, of, of instruction and instincts. Can he, does he have the aptitude? Can he learn things like, it seems like reads are probably a bigger question than routes, where if he's less tentative because he's getting a good read off the bat, then he will run a little bit faster. Because like you said, he's actually a better runner than you would think. Um, and then, he, then that athleticism would start to play a little bit more. And that comes back to some of the player development questions you and I have been talking about for a while now. And does the new, do the new folks uh, who've taken over with Getz moving up to the to the big chair, do they? Uh, how are they going to do with teaching outfield defense? With teach with help, taking a guy like this with the physical tools and teaching him to become a better outfielder. I think we have a lot of examples, like you just said, of them not teaching people to become better outfielders or just taking literally anybody and sticking them in an outfield corner Hopeless and saying, cases. you can figure this out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in a case like Andrew Vaughn, you never really want to say, well, that's on the coaching staff. I mean, it's never going to work. Nobody Gavin thought. Gavin Sheets. Another one. Yes. I mean, I walked behind Gavin Sheets at the ACC tournament in his draft year, and I was like, that is first base only. Like, you could just see from the legs, like, that is a man born to He's play first cabinet. base. He really is. Christina Carl once referred to the pillar of salt technique of defense, and I was like, yep, that's this guy. It is. <laughs> it takes him a long time to turn 90 degrees, um, and I hope he can hit. And, you know, with Veras, he's not like that. He's physically able I mean, I would also say, I don't know that the White Sox have had a ton of guys like that. You know, I think of Micker Adolfo, it's just a bad example because Adolfo came in, by all accounts, not actually knowing the rules of baseball. So you could not start mm -hmm. from lower. I will always, I wish Adolfo had gotten a little further. I give that kid and the White Sox coaches that worked with him so much credit for how far he did get from knowing absolutely nothing to be able to play at AAA. But 
Do they have a lot of examples? I may be forgetting someone of guys like Veras. You know, he's got some baseball, some feel for the game. It's not terribly advanced. He's athletic enough to be able, we're just asking you to play right field. It's not a whole lot more than that, but he's not there yet. I don't know that we have a whole lot of examples of that. The White Sox approach, it's so funny because their draft approach for years was just take the finished product. And then the mm-hmm. international market, they would take take the most unfinished products they could possibly find, neither of which worked out particularly well for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I actually had that thought like, Maybe it's kind of a simulation of what if Adolfo were perfectly healthy because Varus has been you know healthy than you know knock on wood yeah. he's been healthy the entire time and able to get the games in early and make yeah. the most of them. The other one I thought of was like poor man's Eloy Jimenez, mm-hmm. like just you know because watching Jimenez in the futures game, watching him play right field and actually make a close and a catch down the right field, Remember that? and realize like yeah, <laughs> thinking like and then watching him a few years later, I mean like ooh, you know that I, disappeared. Yeah, it was but, like somebody just like gave him like, a, you know, a slow injection or something. I mean, his body slowed down extremely quickly. And then it turned out, it's like, oh, he's just a worse outfielder than I ever realized. I remember that in the Futures game. Damn, he got on his horse for that one. I swear he never did it again. Yeah, well, he did it, actually did it a couple of years ago, but it was a catch in the gap where he absolutely had to run in one direction. Like there was no hesitation. And so like yeah, just- it was the second toughest catch Made by a White Sox player that year, Luis Robert Jr. had the first, but like he made that catch, but it's because like his body told him like, I have to go. Like there's no doubt about this. (laughs) He ended up closing it. But yeah, so that's, those are the two guys I have in mind for like simulations uh, with Varys. And that's why I'm, you know, intrigued enough to put him, you know, uh, seventh, but also like totally fair, by the way, wide open kind of. There's in no way, and Varys was 19th on my list. In no way would I argue that that's, that uh, you are wrong to have him seventh. Yeah. I agree with you. You've got your top five, which are very clear. And then you could jumble. I mean, I wouldn't put like Gonzalez 19th, but the, you you have a lot of variability in the rest of the list. And somebody even commented under my article today, and I, I didn't respond because I kind of, he kind of had a point. He's like, hey, Keith says he really likes the system, but after the top five, sounds kind of tepid on a lot of these guys. I'm like, well, he's not wrong. And maybe I'm a little bit biased in the sense that it hasn't been going that well. And now it's things are actually going pretty well. But I also look through this list and like, no, there's a lot of names here I kind of like. Like Jordan Ledger, he's a straight up reliever. But for folks who haven't seen him, like, it's two of the best pitches in the system. It's crazy how good this guy is. If you thought this delivery would work as a starter, it, he'd be absolutely fascinating. It is 100% reliever. But it is a big fastball that's got a huge ride on top at the top of the zone, and this slider that is just an absolute hammer. He could come up this year and miss a whole lot of bats. And the system has a lot of guys like that. It's like he's just a reliever that does put a bit of a cap on his value. But I, I might really like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're kind of fun. Like so we've yeah. seen White Sox systems where, like after ten, it stops being fun. Oh my god! You it's know. like I can't. It was like, how do I get to twenty? Right. And yeah. every there's somebody every year who's like that. White Sox, White Sox had several years that were like that. And I mean, I know you do this too, right? Where you're just mm-hmm. like, I, I I ran out of names. Like I'm writing up guys who are like seventh starters and guys who'd never make a top 20 in another system. That was not true this year. This might be the, the I think this is the most guys because I had a little others of note section. I don't do that for every team because mm-hmm. you have to have others of note. And they did. They had a bunch. Actually, and I think it's the most names I've ever written up in a White Sox system um, or close to it, which, again, is sort of, you know what, we can we could spend a lot more time. We don't need to talking about what went wrong in the Williams Hahn era. The cupboard mm-hmm. wasn't bare when they left. There was there was stuff to work with. The last batch of trades worked out pretty well. 
did a couple of decent drafts. I, I like the way things are heading, but I'm also glad they handed it off to someone else now to kind of carry this forward into the next few years where there's, there's still going to, there's going to be some more pain and there's going to be some more building. I'm going to wrap up the White Sox talk with one guy you didn't mention. Among all the names you mentioned in your your uh, rankings, even honorable mentions, like one guy who wasn't on that list, and one I'm fascinated by is Brooks Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much you have on him, but the thing that jumped out to me was, you know, UNC Wilmington and mm-hmm. kind of utility guy there, utility guy for the first couple of years in the system until he goes to Winston-Salem, and then he's an everyday shortstop. Mm-hmm. and doing it seemingly okay. And he's also hitting, he's switch hitter, and like the performance is good. So like, to me, like, yeah, I don't know what to do with him. I didn't rank him, but I just have him like, he's on my radar, just like, yeah. this is a weird wrinkle. I You don't see this too often where all of a sudden a guy starts playing shortstop. Uh, I don't, do you have a read on him yet? Or do you have like, is that common to have like shortstop just show up in high A when it really wasn't part of a profile before? Yeah, I actually just checked his games, his fielding. Like he was primarily third baseman it, and in Kannapolis this year. I don't mean by in his life. Yeah. I mean, in the first half of last season, uh, I had nothing on his the quality of his shortstop play for Winston-Salem. So you know, keep that caveat in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he hit there like he'd never hit before, which always makes me kind of immediately suspicious where it's just a small sample and we took out, forgot to move up a level and then hit that much better. All right. That may not sustain, but mm-hmm. I could also understand saying, well, let's keep an eye on this one. Right. Especially if you're, if he actually can play shortstop, it's not unheard of for a guy who to you just end up kind of miscast because there are other players or in, in his case, he was a low draft pick. Right. So there, you know, he's never going to get the priority job. They were moving him around. He played, he moved around quite a bit. He was a 12th round pick and he moved until he got to Winston-Salem, they were just moving him all over the place. I wonder, I'd have to ask, did you just stick him at shortstop because you didn't have anybody else? That's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say we didn't know he could do it. Um, it is interesting that they left him there basically every day for the rest of the season. He'd be one worth catching up with because even mm-hmm. if he doesn't hit, like, I don't think he's going to hit 320. He's never, he hasn't hit like that. UNC Wilmington plays in a very low caliber conference. But if he can actually play shortstop, suddenly you're immediately talking about a utility infielder floor, right? Because he can play all over. He's shown he can play a bunch of these other positions. He can just hit a little bit, and he can handle shortstop on more than an emergency basis. That is a prospect with value. But whether it's top 20 or not, Mm -hmm. it is a player who has some value. And I mean, this, I would come back to the the user, the reader's comment I was mentioning before. There's value in having a bunch of guys who look like pretty good relievers, fourth outfielders, utility infielders. Can't build the whole house out of those things, but you do have to have them. You don't want to be going out paying for it. <laughs> the White Sox have tried. Yeah, it doesn't work as it turns mm-hmm. out. Right, The big bad wolf comes and blows the whole thing down. So I I am fine with them having a lot of those guys in the system. I'm glad you brought Baldwin up um, because I fully admit I did not. I don't have anything on him as a shortstop. And I'll be watching too, because if it turns out he can play shortstop, that's pretty interesting. I mean, that really that changes the entire profile, even if even if it is just from a utility infield perspective. Because I had this conversation with a scout. There's a utility infielder who can play shortstop and the utility guy who can't play shortstop, and there is a big difference in our era where you know teams are carrying so many pitchers. Where if you're a utility infielder who can't play, can't play shortstop, you better do something really special somewhere else because teams just don't have room to carry you. And to finally wrap up, as we always do uh, with your appearances, uh, 
like to get a book recommendation from you. I am reading The Power Broker right now. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going with the 99% uh, Invisible Book Club that's doing 100 pages a month and having you know episodes about it every month and bringing people in to talk about it. And I think that's the only way I'll ever read The Power Broker is having yeah a chunk at a time and having people remind that, me of what I read and why it's great. Is that the Robert Moses book? Yeah, right 1300 okay. pages or so yeah. depending yeah, on yeah. I what copy you have i mean i grew up going to moses beach i just cannot like i just have like this antipathy towards like i know what he did i know who that guy yeah. was i don't need to read a thousand pages sure, about what yeah. a terrible human he was yeah i get it yeah but it's like it's uh <laughs> but my favorite podcast it's like a book i i'll never read That's otherwise yeah. so i'm going to tackle it that way so i'm yeah. in the middle of that right now but what do you have uh that is not robert moses related sure uh, that uh other people might not have uh, lingering trauma about. The next book I'm going to read, I've, I've not started it. I just finished a book last night. It's uh, The Great Fire, which was a National Book Award winner like 20 years ago, I think, from by Shirley Hazard. Um, the book I will recommend is also interesting because it's been in the news. Um, Babel by R.F. Kuang, K-U-A-N-G. It's Babel, B-A-B-E-L, which is a work of speculative uh, fiction um, set. It won the Nebula Award for Best Novel. And uh, it is extreme. It's really literate, intelligent, thoughtful, create the idea she uses. It plays with the trope of the magic school, the kid who gets sort of drafted into, inducted into magic school. Um, she's messing with that just as the basic template and writes a much darker and very politically astute novel about colonialism and exploitation and the rights and responsibilities of the privileged parts of the world to do something good for the remainder of the world. Um, and it came, made the news recently because it was very weirdly and suspiciously omitted, in fact, declared ineligible for the Hugo Award. The Nebula and the Hugo are kind of the two big sci-fi fantasy awards of the year. And winning one of those awards can mean a lot for sales. She wins the Nebula. And when the Hugo Awards come out, she doesn't win. Fine. Okay. You know, nobody wins every award typically. So like then, Golden Globes and Oscars type where Yeah, it's kind of right? and, but yeah. Sometimes always. you if you win, sometimes the same book will win both, but usually it's different. The Pulitzer and the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, usually it's three different winners. And that's good. That actually mm -hmm. spreads the wealth a little bit. But when the voting actual vote results came out for the Hugos, it was turned out it was declared ineligible and nobody knows why. Well, fun fact, the Hugos, the Worldcon, which is the convention where the Hugos are, are, are voted on, um, was held in Chengdu, China. And R.F. Kuang is Chinese by descent and has written some works that you might interpret as critical of the Chinese communist regime. And there is at least a strong suspicion that the Chinese government uh, directly or indirectly influenced the organizers of the vote and had several things declared ineligible, although no one has ever actually to this point, this has only been a couple of weeks this has been out there at all. Mm -hmm. No one has truly come forward with a full explanation. It's been a huge ongoing scandal. I encourage folks to read about it because it's also really fascinating. I like a good scandal. Yeah. Um, and a, one of the Sandman episodes was also declared ineligible and Neil Gaiman is appropriately pissed off about it. There was another short story collection that was declared ineligible because I believe that was also a Chinese uh, a Chinese national or Chinese descended writer. I mean, this is more than just this one book. Babel is the one I've read. And it was pretty great, actually. And it's a quick read for 500 something pages. And I love that you, you walk in and if you've read Harry Potter or the Magician series or any of it, you know the template, right? You're in, you're like, I know where we're going with this. And then she just keeps going, 
she just keeps pulling the rug out from under you and going in a different direction. And, um, and I, I was just completely hooked by the story, but also constantly aware. It's, wow. There's, there's a ton of meaning and metaphor in here. And it's just impressive. She's obviously an extremely intelligent person. In addition to being a great writer, the amount of, um, or the depth of themes that were going on here was comparable to, to great works of non-genre literature, which to me is like, I like genre literature. I think it can rival great literature of, of all eras. And I think that's really what she's done here in Babel is written something that has deep, deep meaning, but is also just compulsively real. I'm blanking on the, the book you recommended before that was along the same lines, like 1100 pages, uh, was it Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell? Is that's the one. one? Okay, yeah, yeah. The one. which was a yes. Hugo winner, actually. Yes, um, and yeah, along the great... same lines, and that's yeah. not normally my genre, but enjoyed oh, it. And yeah, it was a quick read for right? that many pages. The footnotes are great. Actually, Babel has a lot of footnotes too. Babel's footnotes are not funny. The fun, the Jonathan Strange's footnotes are often very funny, um, and because she wrote Piranesi, I wonder if we were talking. We might have been talking about Piranesi as well, yes. which was the author of Jonathan Strange was uh, she had some health issues and then like something like 16 years later returned with her second novel. And it was also wonderful. It was much shorter. Um, but Jonathan Strange is just an all time. I mean, it's, I said it was my favorite novel written this century and that, that would still be true. I think I wrote that a year ago and I would still hold to that. That is an, just an incredible work of art. Well, as always, we really appreciate your time here. I appreciate that every time I set up an appointment with you that I try to set up for a little bit longer to account for the time we go over and yet we go over again. So always appreciate uh, the <laughs> generosity of time. And I look forward uh, next year to comparing notes and I'm preparing for Wilfred Varis to break my heart, but I'm hoping that maybe Brooks Baldwin <laughs> on the back end. I'm you heard it from uh, me first. I will be watching for him. I may not be in Winston-Salem. Actually, I might just bump him up to Birmingham, but I you can you can be rest assured at the very least when I go out to spring training and go over to Glendale, I would be looking for specifically for Brooks Baldwin because of you. Excellent. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks as always to Keith Law. You can find his work at The Athletic along with his board game reviews at Paste and everything else in his personal blog at MeadowParty.com. He's a true renaissance man. As for Sox Machine, James Feigen and I teamed up for our top 10 prospects list that includes 12 players, so if that's not value, I don't know what is. That post is available at SoxMachine.com, exclusively those who support Sox Machine on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, it's a good time to sign up because James just arrived at spring training and a lot of what he's writing will be exclusive to supporters because it's our subscriber support that makes sending James on road trips possible and we want them to reap the benefits. If that sounds like a good deal to you, head on over to patreon.com slash socksmachine where you can access an ad-free version of the website and Socks Machine podcast with bonus content on both. For instance, this episode featured five extra minutes of Keith answering a couple questions from our supporters. Plans start at $5 a month with one month free if you sign up for a year. Thanks for listening to the Socks Machine podcast, a production of socksmachine.com and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. I'm Jim Margulis. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done.